Greetings and welcome to Trinity Radio Extra. I'm Jonathan Pritchett, and today I have Dr. Keith Sherlin with us. How you doing, Keith? Nice to see you, Dr. Pritchett. Glad to yes. be here. Glad to have you. Keith is author of several books. Uh, his, his Essential Christianity is a systematic theology book. You've also edited and written a book on... Uh, what is it? Evangelical Bible Doctrine, Articles in Honor of Dr. Mal Couch. Is that, that, that right? Yes. And then you have, you have several other books. What are some of your other books? Well, one of my most recent publications was an ethical work that we actually published, um, that I published on the doctrine of biblical, the biblical view of capital punishment and abortion. And can you support capital punishment and still be consistently and righteously opposed to abortion? And so now that was one of my most recent works. Um, also, I've got a doctrine, a doctrinal book out on church leadership uh, called Satan's Strategy to Curse Christ's Congregation. It traces the doctrine of biblical eldership and what a New Testament church should look like. Oh, well, that, that, that's, that's some uh, treacherous territory, man. Dangerous grounds on that one. <laughs> Almost that's anything you publish these days could be dangerous. Fair enough, yeah. So <laughs> you're, you're also, um, I know this, and I'm going to, I'm going to out you for our listeners. I, I know that you are also working on an 11 volume, is it, work? Yeah, I have a goal to produce uh, somewhere between 11 and 12 volume systematic theology set, a holistic volume, holistic theology series. Um, working steadily on that. It's about a 15 year project. So right. uh, I'll have not only more gray hair then, <laughs> I might not have any hair by the time I finish it. Yeah, so that's, that's, you're, you're, you're competing with Bart on that one, right? <laughs> not right him. Yeah, Bart, Bart was pretty prolific, no doubt. Well, you know, he died before he finished Dogmatics. So, well, pray that doesn't happen. Right. Let's, let's <laughs> prayers. I don't experience that fate. Yeah. <laughs> So get to work, buddy. Well, you're still in your 40s, so you've got time. Uh, today, we are going to talk about dispensationalism. We're going to talk about what dispensationalism is. We're going to talk about what dispensationalism isn't. We're going to talk about why you should be a dispensationalist if you're not one. People like me, why I should become a dispensationalist. I, I'm the uh, perpetual fence sitter with some amillennialist sympathies but I'm open to it. I work at a seminary where it's overwhelmingly dispensational. And uh, except for a brief period in the early 2000s I, uh, where it, there were, were some uh, Presbyterian faculty here, I think Trinity's historically been uh, a dispensational school. So I'm kind of an oddball where I, 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 uh, I, I don't officially take a position, but I have some sympathies to amillennialism. Uh, and partial preterism as far as eschatology goes, but dispensationalism is not just eschatology. That's one of the things that I'm hoping you'll you'll talk about. But, oh, absolutely. That's one of the misconceptions. Right. And and but in our current climate, of course, um, eschatology has uh, reared its head, at least on a popular level, with all that's going on in, in 2020. Um, and then, of course, there's always. Um, <laughs> A fringe group of uh, of people in any camp has has their fringe group. Uh, partial preter preterism has its full preterist. That's a fringe group. So nobody's pure, but you do see a lot of sensationalism coming out with biblical prophecy in 2020. But but the dispensationalism that 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 I'm surrounded by here at Trinity doesn't really, from Dr. Harold H. Hunter to to Braxton Hunter, who's who leans that way. He's not. He's kind of 
like me where he's not really settled, but he kind of defaults to dispensation. That's, that's his tradition. And, and Dr. Selby and others around Trinity or Dr. Chad, they're all dispensationalists. So what is dispensationalism? Because I have, I only have a, 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 a foggy memory of my youth in Steve Lawson's church where it was what I call Calvispensationalism. <laughs> but, but dispensationalism is not tied to any particular view of soteriology. It, it's, 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 a, it's a way of, uh, well, I'm going to let you explain it because I still am somewhat confused. <laughs> so. Well, uh, and I thought, if I recall correctly, uh, Dr. Harold Hunter told me that the founder of my beloved alma mater there at Trinity was a dispensationalist, Dr. Brooks, I believe. Yeah, John um, Brooks, dispensationalist. And yeah. the, uh, Dr. Uh, well, Harold Hunter, president, was dispensational. Tom Rogers was dispensational. Uh, I don't know what the, what um, Hogue was the other president. Uh, I don't remember. I came in under him to start with there, but I don't know that he ever spoke about that issue that I right. recall. But I do know that Brooke was uh, Hunter, uh, Dr. Rogers, and, and Braxton's, he kind of defaults to that. He, he and I talked about eschatology in, in a recent episode, and we just were just kind of, we didn't know what we were talking about. Because <laughs> we have, that's the one thing where we just don't, we don't wade too deep into those waters. You know, you don't have time to get, to get to everything. So we're still kind of feeling this stuff out. And I have a dispensationalism in my, you know, just that tradition from, from the Bible Church of Little Rock under Steve Lawson, but I, you know, when you're a teenager, you're not really think you're thinking about going to church to talk to girls in the youth group, not so much theology. So, so what if you had to break it down for what is dispensationalism in, in its fully orbed, robust sense? Well, I'll give you the broad perspective. Um, starting with, I always like when I uh, share this with students or when I teach them, I always start with two names that are usually associated with our heritage. Uh, Dr. Lewis Perry Chafer, the founder of Dallas Seminary, who was trained by C.I. Schofield, who uh, mentored him. And then, of course, uh, probably Dr. Chafer's uh, primary uh, disciple, Dr. Charles Ryrie. So I usually start with their definitions because they're really practical and they help give an overview of what it means to be a dispensationalist. Now, Dr. Chafer's definition was pretty insightful, and I'm going to share it with you. He made this statement um, out of this little work right here that he did back in the 1930s, and he gave a concise definition to it, which was, I thought, very helpful. He said, any person is a dispensationalist who trusts the blood of Christ rather than bringing an animal sacrifice. Also, any person is a dispensationalist who observes the first day of the week for worship rather than Saturday the 7th. To a very considerable degree, all Christians are in a sense a dispensationalist. However, not all Christians are as well instructed in other distinctions. And what does he mean by that? Certainly, we know not everybody would classify themselves as a dispensationalist. But he shows one of the key principles of being a dispensationalist is understanding the differentia of Scripture. There's differences in the way God governs his household universe. He's the father of a household universe, and therefore he governs with distinctions and different economies or different stewardships throughout history. And his disciple Charles Ryrie, who studied under him, gave the definition of this. He said, dispensationalism, we view the Bible and the world as a household run by God, 
in his household world, God is dispensing or administering its affairs according to his own will and in various stages of revelation in the phase of time. And of course, he made that statement in one of his most famous works here um, that everybody still uses as a classic on it, Dispensationalism. He has an older one, Dispensationalism Today, and then this one is more of a modern work that he published not too long before, um, um, probably about 10, 15 years ago on that one. Of course, Ryrie just recently went home and be with the Lord about two or three years ago. Now, there's four key principles, kind of like three legs and a seat that describes dispensationalism. All right. The all right. three legs of the stool is a dispensationalist tries as much as possible to consistently interpret the Bible through a historical, grammatical hermeneutic. At the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy, a lot of people don't realize they also made a Chicago Statement of Hermeneutics. And one of the key principles there, although not all were dispensationalists who were in that confession, was the statement about a historical grammatical hermeneutic. We try to go back and understand what every word in the Bible means in its historical contextual setting, and then interpret in its grammatical structure. So that was one of the things that dispensationalists has historically always cherished. And that also means census, uh, single sense of scripture. Instead of census plenier models, we strive to find the single meaning or the single sense in each text of the scripture, rejecting the models that believe that texts can have multiple variant plethora of meanings. So census plenier for, for, for our audience is the idea that, say you take an Old Testament text, it has the meaning in its context, but it has additional revelation in the New Testament can give it a fuller uh, meaning that, that may or may not have been in the original author's mind, and likely it wasn't. Uh, so since it's plenty or says because the Holy Spirit is the single author of Scripture, that, that a, a, a text in the Old Testament can have a fuller meaning uh, if it is uh, echoed or alluded to in the New Testament. And one of the criticisms of, of that view uh, that, that, it, that has haunted me um, is Walter Kaiser's criticism of how can an author write, how can he mean something he never meant? Yes. Right? And, and, and Dr. So, Kaiser's done a lot of work. He's been a champion for a long time of the single sense meaning of scripture. He's been a great valiant warrior in that field. He's really pressed that issue really strongly with a lot of scholarship. And um, he's a weight. He's definitely somebody that you have to deal with when you weigh yeah. into that field. Well, while we're on the subject of this leg of the stool, um, Every evangelical I know is going to say that they use a grammatical historical hermeneutic. So what sets the dispensationalism's grasp of that different from, say, a covenantal theologian? Well, that would be the second leg of our stool. I'm so okay. glad we asked that. Uh, if you test that, the dispensationalist says a way to know that has been applied correctly and consistently, how we verify principle number one is actually being correctly applied, is with the promises of God to both ethnic Israel and to the body of Christ. For example, example in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, God told Abraham, this land that you see with your eyes, and spells out geographical boundaries, specific places that he could go nail a stake down if he was like George Washington and a surveyor. He could have went out there and put stakes in the ground and said, all right, this is the geographical boundary point that God has spelled out and has promised to my physical descendants. So the dispensationalist says, hey, 
if you apply that historical grammatical hermeneutic to those texts there, that means the ethnic seed, the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and specifically Jacob, because Jacob became the father of Israel. He was the first one to be called Israel. That progeny will at some point receive that promise that has been given to them. And we know historically that Israel has never obtained that full inheritance that was spelled out in the Genesis 12, 7, Genesis 12, 15, and 17. So we say one of the most easy and most uh, clear-cut ways to know if you've applied that historical grammatical hermeneutic is what do you do with the specific promises made to the ethnic seed of Abraham? And if you apply that there, then you would arrive at the view that God's promises for them, as well as the promises for the body of Christ, will come to pass. And one of the questions, the dispensationalist is a very practical question that we ask is, well, if God won't fulfill his promise to that ethnic seed, why should we be so certain that he'll fulfill his promise to grant us heaven and new earth and all the many other promises that he's made in the New Testament to the body of believers? But we believe that God's promises, both to ethnic Israel and to the body of Christ, must come to pass, and that hermeneutic helps us find that that is something that will remain. My covenant friends, who, of course, remembering Ronald Hinsale and O. Palmer Robertson, two covenant theologians who always I bring up about this, they clearly say that dispensationalists and covenant theologians are united in about 85 to 90% of our views of scripture. We stand side by side in so many areas. So this isn't a major orthodoxy position of difference. We agree on so much. But in this area, we say that the dispensationalist doesn't have to fudge or reduce or mitigate or alter or as Walter Kaiser as a Calvinist he says what happened to my Calvinists who believe in the unconditional election and the sovereignty of God if God makes a sovereign promise he's big enough to bring it to bring it to pass so he asked a good question to his own tradition as a covenantalist he says somehow or another we have to let these promises made to Israel stand which is one of the reasons why Dr. Kaiser though he doesn't classify himself as a dispensationalist actually wound up embracing views that were more in line with our tradition on the subject of Israel because of his historical grammatical hermeneutic and his view that if a specific promise is made, we must let that promise stand and we can't alter it. So would it be fair to say that anyone who embraces a view that Christ is the true Israel, so everyone in Christ is true Israel, whether Jew or Greek or or some, some people have this idea of the church has replaced Israel and all the promises uh, are to Christ and the heirs of Christ. Oops, my light went off. You need to pay your power bill there. <laughs> uh, I hear you. <laughs> I, Braxton goes cheap on us. No, I, <laughs> I've got a hutch here that blocks the motion sensor, so it'll go off every few minutes or so. So anyone who embraces that view is likely not a dispensationalist. But anyone who does embrace your view, whether they like Kaiser, whether they classify themselves dispensational or not, they're more in line with dispensational thought than they are with, say, covenantal thought, right? So yeah, even if the they word, don't, the key word is more in line. That's correct. Yes. Yeah, they're more in line with dispensationalism. So, for for Walter Kaiser, what what keeps him from from being dispensational? In that sense, I don't think Dr. Kaiser would say he's anti-dispensational. Uh, one of my mentors that uh, uh, his dad studied under Dr. Chafer, G. Coleman Luck, and then his son, William Luck, a retired professor Moody, 
been one of my closest mentors for years in the faith and um, he studied under Dr. Kaiser and uh, kind of helped introduce me to Kaiser. He studied under Kaiser at Trinity and we were just actually talking last night a little bit about this session here, what I was doing today. And he even reiterated last night, Dr. Luck said, Dr. Kaiser never said he was anti-dispensational. Um, the areas where Kaiser might not be so much dispensational is probably uh, maybe the pre-trib rapture. I don't know that he would have been a pre-tribulationist, which is more common, though not universally accepted, but 95, 99% of us in our tradition are, but I don't think Kaiser would hold that uh, aspect of it. And he steered somewhat of a mediating position describing his theology as promise theology. But I don't think he ever, he writes with us, of course, in, in the book of uh, Dr. Wayne House, edited in our tradition, Israel, the Land and the People, uh, Dr. Kaiser uh, wrote in that one on the land promises and wrote with all dispensationalists. And um, in this work right here, actually, so I have the continuity, discontinuity, edited by dispensationalist John Feinberg that shows the two traditions side by side. Uh, Dr. Kaiser wrote the discontinuity perspective on the kingdom of God. So I don't think he would say I'm anti-dispensational, but for whatever reasons, maybe on some minor points, he's just chosen not to identify himself that way. Well, that, that brought up an interesting thing I want to raise when, when we get to talking about uh, eschatology, but I, I don't want to bring that here because we, we need to finish the stool. You've got one more leg and a, and, know, and a seat. We ain't got a full seat yet. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> so what's the next, uh, the third leg of the stool? The third leg of the stool is a uh, somewhat of a philosophical, historical philosophy of history view. The dispensationalist sees that the ultimate purpose of God is to magnify his glory. Um, the glory of God is the broadest and most central theme of Scripture. Some people like to say salvation is the most important theme of Scripture. Um, my Southern Baptist friends, you know, a lot of times they make everything about the Great Commission or the, uh, the kingdom of God, salvation and evangelism, that kind of thing, which is extremely important. Nobody would deny that. But um, there's other themes of scripture that don't necessarily fall into those categories. So we believe the broadest perspective of the motive of scripture is the glory of God. Dr. Miller J. Erickson, who happens to be a Southern Baptist, or at least was one um, years ago, I guess he still is, he wrote in his Systematic Theology that systematic theology needs a philosophy of history and a central motive. He mentioned Calvin's was the sovereignty of God, and different theologians have different motives. And he says it gives strength to the preacher and strength to the teacher to have an emphasis, an underlying emphasis. Well, numerous times in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it mentions God does all things for his glory. He created all things for his glory. He's, he's, he tells us to do all things for his glory in Corinthians. So we believe that everything ultimately is about magnifying the character of God in every aspect of life, even in things that aren't particularly pertaining to salvation. And that gives us a philosophy of history that I believe to be more holistic. It can cover anything. Um, from not only being a minister in the pulpit, preaching and teaching, but being the police officer on the street, being the medical doctor in the room during surgery in a hospital. Everything is about God's glory being magnified through you as a steward of his glory in your respective field of whatever you're doing. So what's the seat? 
So the seat, it's most of the time assumed because of what I mentioned about the dispensational errors of time. Um, and I don't know why Ryrie, I guess he just assumed it, but um, it's pretty necessary to have a good seat, I believe, to go ahead and say that we believe that there are at least three dispensations. Um, and that would distinguish us from the covenantalists who believe in usually um, two dispensations of history. Now they all believe, we all believe in a new heavens and a new earth, but that's the eschaton and that's no longer earthly history. So we believe there's three periods of earthly history with a capstone at the end of the millennial kingdom. So basically we believe in the Mosaic law period, Old Testament, the new covenant period with Christ and the Holy Spirit functioning in the body of Christ, the believers, and then the millennial kingdom period where Christ rules and reigns on this earth. So we, at least all dispensationalists, to be a true and consistent dispensationalist, has to admit there's three specific eras of history instead of just two. The covenantalists believe in an Old Testament era and a New Testament era that ends with Christ returning, setting up the millennial kingdom, or setting up, excuse me, setting up the uh, new heavens and new earth without a period of history known as the earthly millennial kingdom with Christ present here. So we believe that that's necessary to put the seat down, kind of put the cap on the legs to say, this helps define our position that we at least believe in three dispensational or economies of time that distinguish us from our covenantalist friends. And so that identifies a, a key aspect of us to help identify that. Now there's different numbers. Some people believe in seven dispensations, some believe in 12 dispensations. And those are differentiations of, of sub-matters and sub-relationships in each of the, of the kind of fields of time. But all of us on the broad scale at least believe in those big three, the old covenant, the new covenant, and the kingdom. So what would, so it, you hear terms like classic dispensationalism and progressive dispensationalism. Yeah. What's the difference? Basically the hermeneutic, um, the progressives, um, and not all the progressives have done this, but some of them have. And of course, I'm friends with them and appreciate them and a lot of their scholarship. Um, Dr. Bach would be a progressive dispensationalist. Dr. Robert Sosi was a progressive dispensationalist who's now with the Lord. Yeah, uh, my Dr. professor at Biola. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever know him personally? Well, I had, I had a course with him and met him during the residency. I didn't get to spend a lot of time with him, but he yeah. was a wonderful man. Yes, he was. Yeah. Um, and then Dr. Craig Blasing, who I believe is still down at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, those are kind of like the three big progressive dispensations, although Dr. Sosi was not as far along the uh, pendulum as, as maybe Bach and Blazing were. One of the, I guess, two big issues that usually shows up in the progressive dispensationalist world is number one, the hermeneutic, they, they have uh, described themselves as a complementary hermeneutic that the New Testament comes along and adds additional revelation that the Old Testament author may not have understood or noticed. Um, now, Dr. Rodney Decker of uh, Baptist Bible Seminary, I believe as he was, he's also now with the Lord, um, said that's not necessarily anti-classical dispensationalists, although that does seem to come up in the discussions quite a bit. Um, certainly, um, the second one has some significant and that is where is Christ now is he ruling and reigning on the throne of David the older dispensationalists like Chaper and Ryrie and Walbert and Pentecost Leitner and Couch and those guys of that era they would say no that Christ 
is ruling from heaven now on the throne of God, not the throne of David, and the two are not the same. They equate the throne of David as the future earthly political kingdom. When Jesus returns, he will be seated in Jerusalem, which we do believe is very clear in Zechariah 14. That this he is the millennium, the right? Yes, this would be the during the millennium. Okay. When he returns, he will sit down on the throne of David. The throne meaning um, the position of rulership from physical land of Israel. He will actually set up shop. I joke with my friends and I tell them, get ready, the White House is moving to Israel when Jesus <laughs> returns. And so uh, he'll set up shop there and rule from Davidic, the Davidic throne, the place of rulership in Israel and Jerusalem. So there's some internal debate. It's an intramural discussion among our dispensations family on how best to describe um, that aspect of it. I tend to think that Jesus is not ruling and reigning from David's throne because David's throne never was in heaven. His throne was always an earthly throne. So I tend to side with the side that says um, that throne will be the earthly political kingdom throne. So the number of dispensations is not really a factor in the differences between classic and progressive then? Now the progressives identify at least clearly three to four. The, uh, uh, the classicals identify uh, even the Dallas Seminary Statement, kind of like the, the flagship seminary of dispensationalism. It identifies law, grace, and kingdom in its, in its, uh, in its uh, confession for the seminary. So um, we have some internal differences on how many and how best to describe those things, but universally across the board, we all believe that there's a old covenant law dispensation, a new covenant grace dispensation, and a kingdom, earthly millennial kingdom dispensation. So you've talked about stools and, and, and houses. You've never once mentioned charts, which is what people think when they think dispensationalism. But Well, that's because I'm a bad artist. Oh, there you go. Okay. <laughs> so, so all dispensationalists would be premillennialists, yes? Uh, yes, I've never. <laughs> if there is such a thing as a non-premillennial dispensationalist, right. I've never heard of it. And it's a literal millennial kingdom on earth for a thousand years. Yeah, just as literal as Christ's literal resurrection body. He will literally physically be on this earth and he will be classified as the king. So people make a distinction between dispensationalism and historic pre-mill. Um, and, and they will talk about this idea of dispensationalism being a relatively recent and not not like yesterday but recent in in church history and others would argue that that's a misconception or or or, or just flat out wrong so what is and and of course the genetic fallacy is of course assuming something's wrong because of you heard it from you know, some source in the 1800s or whatever. So that's irrelevant to whether or not dispensationalism is true. So I, I don't care about that. But, but the historical pedigree in church history, what would, where, how would you show the, the, the development of that? Because John MacArthur, when, when he defends dispensationalism, he says the Reformation didn't finish its work. Um, others, um, I, I know Dr. Randy White has, I don't know if you're familiar with Randy White. He, he has talked about um, dispensationalist, or at least, or at least, uh, theological discourse that is that is friendly and compatible with not just historic pre-mill, but with dispensationalism in church history. So, could you give us? 
very briefly, just what is the historical pedigree of dispensationalism? Well, all three of the stools of the leg that I spoke about, we see as also found in some of the early church fathers. Now, of course, as um, numerous of our scholars in our field have said, they were not as developed as we are. Nobody would ever argue that at all. But we see certain early church fathers, I believe even Tertullian, and I, and I didn't actually get their quotes. Um, I should have done that, but um, their quotes in the early church where they believed in the fulfillment of those earthly land promises to Israel. And that is key to our understanding of the scriptures, that if those land promises will be granted to ethnic Israel, then that's a key component of the dispensational tradition. And we see several scholars that held that. We know most all Historians recognize, as Philip Schaff has noted many a time, the early church fathers were premillennial for the most part up until the time of Augustine. Hardly nobody disputes that aspect of it historically, that we recognize a substantive and significant portion of the early church fathers held to some type of premillennial system. So that is the basis to what we see as the early seeds of it. And I use the word seeds because it doesn't blossom and flower until later in history it becomes more systematized. And we do believe, even my friends out in Southern California, um, in the country of California, I'm joking, it's part of the mm. United States, although sometimes <laughs> I wonder. <laughs> um, they just wrote this from um, um, Dr. David Jeremiah Seminary out there, Southern California Seminary, Corey Marsh and Fazio and Dr. Cone that you know, Dr. Chris Cone. They wrote forwards from the Reformation, how dispensational thought advances the reformed legacy. And I often say, and of course, as you know, you sat in on my dissertation committee there and uh, had some barbecue with me, uh, out of me, during the time <laughs> of the defense. We, we had to take our shots. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I have often said that dispensationalism is the third wave of the Reformation. The Reformation returned itself to what? A literal, historical, grammatical hermeneutic. Luther and Calvin had some really strong words against taking the scriptures in a non-literal way. Uh, Luther called it popish, uh, popery. Hmm. You know, he was very anti that. Now, they didn't consistently follow that out, we say, because they were men limited of their times, of course. And I mean, uh, when, you, when you got friends that are throwing a potato sack on your head to take you off to a castle to hide you because there's a warrant for your arrest and death, it's kind of hard to study the Bible consistently when right. you're running for your life. Sure. So we recognize that those guys had their limitations, um, and Calvin didn't even write a book, uh, Commentary on Revelation, or the last half of the book of Ezekiel. He got to the last section of Ezekiel, the last half of it, and said, I don't know how to make this fit. Why? Because he was a man of his tradition, and he still had those overriding principles that had come from what we believe to be the Roman Catholic allegory system, that when he read those things about a future temple being restored on this earth, it was something that he just couldn't make fit with his ideology. So we believe the first Reformation returned some key doctrines, of course, like of historical grammatical, uh, the importance of that, hermeneutic, and salvation by grace through faith. But then the second Reformation happened with the church-state distinction. The Anabaptists, the radical reformers, said, look, yes, there's a lot of things that the reformers have gotten right, but no, you're wrong. You're also wrong on the church being a part of the state. The church should be free from the authority of the state. So the radical reformation second wave was that. And that became the Puritan and Pilgrims who came to colonial America to set up shop with a free church tradition. Well, the third wave came from that Puritan and Pilgrim strand. 
and a good scholar who's written on this extensively showing that Jay and Darby did not create or invent dispensationalism is a PhD scholar from uh, California, uh, Dr. William Watson, who teaches at Colorado Christian University right now. He wrote the work called Dispensationalism Before Darby, which is a wonderful historical work showing that dispensationalist ideas were all around the uh, European area during the Reformation, many, many years prior to Darby. So those things began developing, and Darby, who wrote a massive, I got his volumes back there, I think he wrote 30-something plus volumes, a prolific teacher and writer, um, Darby began to systematize more of the ideas that were being expressed through different writers and teachers of that era. So the third Reformation era is to take that hermeneutic that our forefathers, Calvin and Luther and Zwingli and the great men like that, who had their flaws, like all of us do, but they still had a basis that we built from to build a dispensationalist model that honors Israel and end times with that hermeneutic. Uh, Calvin and Luther and Zwingli really didn't take the time to apply what they had returned to in those fields. And if you apply those things to the doctrine of the land promises, you wind up with a future land promise to Israel. And then we believe it also believes leads to premillennial views and so on and so forth. All right. So two quick questions. Um, one is about, in, in addition to grammatical historical, you stress the word literal. And there's a lot of straw men that I've noticed. And I think I've taken a few, burnt some straw in your direction over this a, a couple of times on Facebook. But clear up what you mean by literal as if you don't mean that you believe Jesus is a door. So, so yeah. when people say here, dispensationalists talk about a literal hermeneutic, what, what is that and what, what is it not? Well, that never was stated that we did not have figures of speech or metaphors or similes or anything like that in Scripture. Certainly those are there. Even, in fact, uh, Dr. Bullinger, Dr. Bullinger, uh, I'm never sure exactly how to pronounce his name, Bullinger or Bullinger, but either way, he wrote a massive volume on figures of speech in the Bible, all the figures of speech in the Bible. So dispensationalists certainly have never denied that there's metaphors and similes and symbolism in Scripture. When we mean literal or historical grammatical, we mean what would the original audience have understood that statement in their context? And we believe if you understand that basic principle, a lot of hermeneutic books, I believe you're actually working on a hermeneutics text right now. Yeah, You'll probably uh, recognize this classical statement from so many hermeneutic scholars, if the literal sense makes sense, look for no other sense. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. that little maxim is, is, is kind of a, a slogan that's uh, helpful to understand that it doesn't deny symbolism in Scripture. It doesn't deny that Scripture uses metaphors and analogies. Certainly when Jesus says, I am a door, we have to understand what a literal door is to understand the metaphor or the point he was making out of analogy. And that's the analogical use of scripture. We believe that scripture uses analogies using concrete phenomena to help make a point of a truth or a point of teaching. And so Jesus said, I'm the door. He said, I'm the way that you get to the father. Right. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You come through me like you walk through a door. So we don't deny the analogies of scripture at all. So Dr. Randy White stresses on uh, his Ask the Theologian program from time to time. He, he's, he, he, I watch his podcast when I can to try to learn a little bit more uh, when I have time on this, because he's, he's, he's started a dispensational publishing house, which 
I thought was good because I, I think that there's a gap in the market right now on dispensational, right. which we'll get to soon. Uh, but he stresses that in dispens and, and, and I know that dispensationalists differ on minor things, but, but is the idea of the kingdom being entirely future, is that consistent with all dispensationalists? That when we talk about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, we're talking the kingdom, that's, that's, that's future. The earthly millennial Christocracy, I usually use the term Christocracy uh, to describe the millennial kingdom. Um, when we say that, it doesn't mean that there's, there is no kingdom right now. And that's a somewhat one of the things when you ask what is not dispensationalism, um, that sometimes has been a, a confusing point. Sometimes people believe king, that dispensationalists do not recognize any form of a kingdom right now here. And that's not so. Um, Dr. Arnold G. Fruchtenbaum, graduate of New York University with a PhD, wrote the largest dissertation that university has ever accepted that we understand. It was over 600 pages, and then it became 1,200 pages in his, um, in his work right here, Israelogy, the missing link in systematic theology. Um, Dr. Fruchtenbaum, who I studied under and continue to study under still, and who's uh, been very uh, gracious and a good mentor to me over the years, um, Dr. Fruchtenbaum describes five kingdoms in the scriptures, and one of those is the earthly Christocracy, the future millennial Davidic millennial kingdom, but there's other kingdoms of scripture too. For instance, the born-again kingdom, the kingdom that all of us are in right now under the lordship and headship of Jesus. That's a kingdom that exists right here, right now. So uh, then you have, the, uh, you have the theocratic kingdom over Israel. And then you have the providential mystery, the providential kingdom, where God is governing all things in his universe in some way, shape, or form, whether you're an Armenian or a Calvinist or a Muslim or wherever you want to follow that perspective in that conversation, we all agree God is providentially governing his household universe. So that's a kingdom. And then you have the mystery kingdom, the parables, where it talks about the mystery, uh, the mystery kingdom in there. So Dr. Friedenbaum has stressed about the five types of kingdoms in scripture. So um, it's not accurate to say that there is no kingdom here now. There are forms of kingdom here. We just delineate in the specificity of what type of kingdom is here versus the kingdom to come. Okay. So that is, and there, there may be differences among dispensationalists on how they hash that out. As far as yeah, now, Alva J. McLean, who uh, was a fan of Dr. Ron Clutter, who I was able to be able to study from there at Trinity, who was a student of Dr. Ryrie as well. Um, he was a big fan of Dr. McLean, who discussed the kingdom in a mediated form, that the kingdom of God and Dr. J. Dwight Pentecost, former Dallas Seminary Scholar, also focused that way, that there's uh, the mediatorial kingdom, that the kingdom is administered by mediators throughout history. And so there's the unmediated kingdom, God's sovereignty over all, and then the mediated kingdom, where he is sovereign, he administered his sovereignty through uh, regions on this earth in various periods and stages of history. So that's also one way in which some scholars have tried to explain the kingdom concept. All right, so we, we, we I, I have a clear picture of what dispensationalism is, and I know John MacArthur is, is, is famous for saying, if you believe in an Old Testament and a New Testament, you're a dispensationalist at some point. You're, you're actually, you're, 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 you would, you wouldn't differ with that, but you, you want to stress at least three dispensations, uh, uh, Old Testament, New Testament, future millennium, right? 
Yes, and and MacArthur certainly believes in a future earthly kingdom. Sure. Exactly yes. Yeah. But uh, but I mean, as kind of a way to make everyone come to terms with their position on this, he says at least the, if you if you believe in an Old Testament and a New Testament, you're you're it's a you're a minimalist dispensational at least. Well, but, Dr. Taper would say that if you're not making sacrifices, you admit right. there's some type of change in the economy of God. Right. That quote that you read at the at the at the start of the program. So. So what is dispensationalist not? What are what are some of the 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 things that that as a dispensationalist makes you want to roll your eyes or tear what little hair you have left on your head makes you want to tear that out? What what drives you crazy that people misconceive about dispensationalism or accuse dispensational of dispensationalism of being when it's not that? Well, one of the big problems is, again, as I mentioned, it's not about the number of dispensations as long as you understand the three basics. It's not whether it's seven, ten, or twelve. That doesn't define whether one's a dispensationalist or not. Also, another one is the what I call the monopoly get out of tribulation card. You know, and played monopoly years ago, they give you that get out of jail free card. You know, yeah. and people think, oh, well, you as dispensationalists, you just don't believe in persecution. Well, that's just furthest thing from the truth. There's not, not an ounce of truth in that. Uh, the book of Peter applies to all of us. There's going to be persecution. Jesus said, in this world, you'll suffer. You'll face tribulation. Our theology is not a get-out-of-tribulation get free card. It doesn't mean that you're not going to suffer. You may even die for your faith. Um, you know, I traveled overseas last year to teach at South Asia Seminary. And uh, sadly, right before I got there, there was a pastor arrested. Uh, for doing missions work over there, and, and I'm not sure if he's gotten out yet. He was still there uh, uh, months after I'd left, and so he's certainly suffering an unjust system and suffering for uh, the cause of the Lord, and so uh, there's missionaries who are dying. There, I mean, the things that we've seen here in this year in 2020, persecution sure. coming on believers. It's not a get-out-of-tribulation escape card, so just because most dispensationalists 90, 95, 99% of us believe in a rapture that takes you away from the wrath of God described in Revelation 16, 19 does not mean that we believe that you're not going to suffer other forms of tribulation that happens in this world. So I hear people say that, and I do. I just cringe. I'm like, well, you know, if you'd read the actual uh, books of the dispensationalists, you'd realize that's just not what the, the heart of the matter is. Uh, we make a distinction between um, the final wrath of God on the world versus uh, tribulation in this world now, which Jesus promised all of us would face if you live a godly life. So that's certainly one area that's just a misconstrued idea about our system. Uh, also, uh, dispensationalism is not just about end times. As you mentioned earlier about the holistic theology series I'm working on that I'll probably be walking with a cane and a walker by the time <laughs> I'm done with. Uh, uh, you know, it's a holistic theology. It's not about just end times. And the reason I think that became an idea is because, as you know, as a historian and as a scholar as you are, you understand that sometimes when something's neglected, sometimes a movement comes along to reemphasize something that a prior movement didn't emphasize. Sure. And so when you start emphasizing something more so than other parts, it kind of becomes a movement associated with that area. For instance, Baptists, uh, they were baptizing when they got the name Anabaptist or baptizer, you know, they were baptizing again a second time as they were called. Well, the Baptists isn't just about 
water and being immersed. There's more to being a Baptist than that. But their name got attached to them because that was an emphatic point they were bringing to the table at that particular time in history. So dispensationalists certainly are not just about end times. We're not just about um, the rapture, the tribulation. Uh, it's not just about that. It's a holistic theology that covers all aspects of theology from Genesis to Revelation. And, and sadly, that has been... Um, a problem because of the emphasis. They, they emphasize something so much, Israelology, uh, eschatology, the coming of Christ, the millennium, and those types of things, that other portions were not spoken about as often or as much, and it left a gap in that field of literature in our tradition, which is something that some of us younger ones coming along are trying to help offset. Well, if, uh, it's, if, it's, if it is a holistic theology from Genesis to Revelation, and and, and wrapped up in a particular hermeneutic that has certain presuppositions about the promises to is national Israel or, or, you know, the seed of Abraham, the physical seed. If that's a guiding principle throughout the Bible, then it's going to help you understand, at least from the dispensationalist perspective, you can teach the Bible in, 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 a, in a way that's consistent from start to finish. Whereas uh, other people who don't, adopt certain presuppositions may not have a Genesis to Revelation uh, consistent hermeneutic all the way through uh, because yeah. you have to, you have to stipu make stipulations that, that, that this is going to mean this. Uh, so once you, once you reject census plenier, you've removed some, we'll just say creative hermeneutics. Uh, <laughs> you, you've removed certain readings of a text that, that are off limits because of that. So it helps you when you get to those texts that others may disagree with because they have different views of, of, of that. The dispensationalists will be consistent um, in how they exegete the, those same passages uh, from the Old Testament to, their, to wherever they're uh, not just quoted, but also cited, uh, echoed, or alluded to in the New Testament. It's the, it carries through. There's no... There's no deeper thing. You're actually getting what the New Testament author meant because he meant the same thing the Old Testament author meant. Yeah, there's a there's a, a system of there's a I use the word continuity, not in the sense of, of covenant theology. Sense, right. But there's in our field. Uh, it's interesting that some of our scholars have noted that oftentimes the amillennialists or the postmillennialists. Um, or the covenant traditionalists, when they come to uh, futuristic texts, they're all over the board. I mean, there's so many different options out there. There, you know, m m many of them don't even agree among themselves. Even when they're all millennial, they don't even agree with sure. a particular interpretation. Of oh, I've read the commentaries. Yeah. So, you know, you might have you might have ten all millennialists and have twenty views. <laughs> yeah, right. Exaggeration. But interestingly, the dispensationalists. We do have diversity in our field. That's not to say we don't, but we do have a much tighter and much less um, variation on certain key eschatological passages than do our alternative cousins in the faith. And we believe that is so because um, I'm going to send you all a donation for your power bill up there <laughs> when I get off. Uh, <laughs> um, we believe that is so because of the consistent application of our hermeneutic from Genesis to Revelation, which kind of tightens in the parameters of options 
for what is a consistent and logically uh, 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 what is consistent and logical with the hermeneutic we're applying. It means that uh, there will be less of a field, less of the boundaries. There will be a tighter scope as to what the options are for what that passage might mean. So in terms of eschatology, though, you've got um, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib rapture. Is that, is that, they all agree on a rapture, but is that uh, one of those areas where there might be slight disagreement among dispensationalists at which point the rapture occurs? There's some d diversity there. Um, I always try to make this point. Uh, some people, you know, uh, will make the statement, oh, well, I don't believe in a rapture. I'm not a dispensationalist. So I'm like, well, if you're an Orthodox believer, you believe in some type of rapture to come. When Jesus descends out of the sky, there's going to be a resurrection of people coming out of the tombs. So it doesn't matter whether you're a millennial, post-millennial, historic career dispensationalist. You believe when Christ returns in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that the graves are going to open up, the dead are going to rise of Christ. So everybody believes in that if you're an Orthodox believer. The difference is the timing at which all these things start happening. As D.L. Moody said, sometimes our watches don't line up. My dad was a horologist. He was a watchmaker. And uh, sometimes people's watches are at 12 noon, at 3 p.m., 6 p.m., and 9 p.m. on these matters. And sure. so that's what we're dealing with. Uh, I uh, Even, uh, for example, Dr. John Walford and Dr. Uh, Charles Ryrie disagreed on the length of the tribulation. Uh, John Walford believed that the tribulation only lasted three and a half years, that the first half of the seven years was a time of peace, and then the last three and a half years was a time of the judgment, tribulation, and the wrath of God. So he combined Revelation 6 through 19 in the last half of Daniel's 70th week, the heptad there in Daniel 70, uh, the Daniel uh, 77s there. Uh, so, uh, uh, and, and Ryrie believed the tribulation was a full seven years. So we have people also that believe the rapture happens Prior to uh, the Revelation 6 through 19, um, I believe Dr. Gleason Archer, who was at least friendly toward dispensationalists, and may have been a dispensationalist himself, I'd have to double check on that, but he was a mid-tribulationist, if I recall correctly. And so we've had those. Dr. Robert Gundry, a dispensationalist, uh, was a post-tribulational dispensationalist. So we've had people that differ in those fields, although, again, I would say, venture to say, if you were to put every dispensationalist on the table and start measuring the numbers mathematically, you would have at least 90% easily or more who were some type of pre-tribulationist, whether that was uh, full pre-tribulationist that uh, puts it all before, or at least mid-tribulationist or pre-wrath somewhere. Most people, and the reason that is because of the book of Thessalonians. A lot of people don't know this, but one of the first people to introduce me to a dispensationalist view of eschatology was, was at North Spring University. I was talking to, um, uh, I can't believe his name just slipped my mind now. Um, oh, goodness. Harvard scholar that taught down there at Beeson, uh, Dean of Beeson University. Uh, what was his name? It'll come to me in just a minute. Uh, I forget names, books, titles, all kinds of stuff. Don't worry. Dr. Timothy George. There Timothy you go. George. All right, it took me for a second. But I was standing in North Room University Library. And I just asked him, I said, well, you know, I was struggling with these things about the rapture and the timing of it and everything. And, and he smiled at me and said, you got a few minutes to talk? And I said, sure. And he said, well, 
let's look at the book of Thessalonians. Let's just do a biblical theology study bit real quick. And so we went through it, and he said, chronologically, you have the day of the Lord showing up in chapter 5, and you have the rapture passage in chapter 4. And then he took me back and said, if you look at 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10, it says we will be so-so from the foregate to come, delivered from the wrath to come. And the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 5 shows up. And he said, so even if you don't understand anything about dispensationalism, just do a biblical study of this book chronologically. And I looked at that and examined it over the years. And most dispensationalists, and even some who are not dispensationalists who wind up pre-tribulational, there's some in the free Bible Presbyterian movement, the Bible Church Presbyterian movement. Over here in Greenville, South Carolina, we have some of those who would not necessarily call themselves dispensationalists, but they believe that there's some type of promise given to the body of Christ that will deliver them before the actual unleashing of God's wrath on the earth. And so that's why the majority of us wind up somewhere with the idea that we will be removed with a special blessing, a special dose of grace that's given to us that protects us from the unleashing of God's wrath that will uh, catastrophically judge the whole world. So dispensationalists, you're not sitting around studying Left Behind series. You're not studying uh, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 88. That that kind of stuff, that, that doesn't fall on your that doesn't fall on your reading list, does it? Uh, I think most all scholarly and mature and reputable dispensationalists left behind, left behind. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, so that, 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 that kind of stuff is, is, you know, whether it's the Hal Lindsay's and all of that stuff that you're, you guys more of the, the academic tradition, you know, the Dallas got all this. Uh, so I would say this about, about um, that, the series that, um, that Tim LaHaye popularized him and, and Jenkins. Yeah. So that was a fiction. That was kind of like, you know, something like C.S. Lewis was right as far as just a fictional story with basic principles thrown in there. If you ask Tim LaHaye, he got uh, the outline of that from the scholarly reputable dispensationalists, but then, you know, did creative art with it and that kind of thing. So yeah, those series of books were not designed by him to actually teach a system of theology. It was teach to, it was a, it was a creative artistic piece of literature. Yes, you're the first person I've heard it compared to C.S. Lewis, but we'll let that one go. <laughs> well, uh, interestingly, uh, um, Tim LaHaye's works have outsold now the greatest piece of literature, Pilgrim's Progress, um, um, some of the greatest and most prolific sales of books. His books have outsold all of those now. I mean, it's and, up to and 50 million copies. That should cause us to weep, but... <laughs> we should weep well, over that. Uh, you well, know. I, think, I think the point of that, though, is that so, sometimes you can take theology and popularize it so that people will read it. Oh, a lot of people are just not interested in reading, you know, drive must sure. theology. No doubt. Um, and I'm, I'm not opposed to that in principle. So, because um, C.S. Lewis, you know, Bunyan, marvelous at that kind of thing. So, um, close up where is dispensationalism right now what's what's it sure. some people would think have us believe it's on life support in in, in christian academia 
uh, others say no. Where where are we at with dispensationalism right now? Because it seems like a lot of the Dallas theologians um, aren't even writing on this topic anymore. So so where is it at? Who's still talking about it? Well, people continue to you know we've heard that our that we need to have the funeral deserved and whoever's going to our funeral and uh, they've been telling us that uh, clear uh, Dr. Chris Cohn is one of the producing uh, a lot of literature on it um, you've got Southern Evangel uh, Southern Seminary uh, Southern California Seminary Dr. David Jeremiah's school still producing a lot of literature on the subject you have Southern Evangelical Seminary up in Charlotte North Carolina that still has uh, the apologists who are in uh, Geisler's field uh, and his train of thought, and they're dispensationalists. Um, you still have many of the great evangelists who are dispensationalists. And so uh, the movement as a whole is still there. We have uh, universities and you have the, the, the literature still there if you're interested in finding it. The problem is that a lot of times people make that statement and it's just, um, it's really kind of a way just to avoid it or just to stamp it out or to try to say it's not even relevant anymore. Um, and one of them, uh, Dr. Fruchtenbaum is still writing and he just produced a four volume set on the life of the Messiah from a Messianic Jewish perspective, uh, Yeshua. Uh, four volume set and of course he's writing a full commentary series on every book of the bible from a hebraic tradition him being a jew himself a believing jew and a dispensationalist so the literature is still william watson is uh, doing another historical work to show the dispensational ideology that was in the early church the seeds of that in the early church uh, of course wayne house is still writing on it uh, of course uh, my contributions to the field as the time goes by so uh, the idea that dispensationalists are, are waning or disappearing, uh, that's just not so uh, really. It's just there's many of them out there in various places. Dispensationalists is a trans-denominational movement, too. They show up everywhere. Uh, yeah. Dr. Craig Blazing's book talks about this. We've been a trans-denominational movement from Moody Bible Institute to Dallas Seminary, uh, R.A. Torrey, who founded Bible Institute of Los Angeles that became Bible University and Talbot Seminary. Uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary, uh, Southern California Seminary, Calvary University, uh, there in Missouri. Um, Assemblies of God uh, Seminary, they're uh, yeah. of God tradition dispensational. So uh, they're out there, and uh, probably what's happening is you're not having as much literature promotion promoted just on the rapture. And, and things like the Niagara Bible conferences and some of those conferences that emphasize that because it's pretty widespread, as you can see now, as I just mentioned those um, books, you know, by uh, Tim LaHaye, it's so popular and the, and you know, the even movies made out of that. But that has become so popular that a lot of dispensations are now looking and focusing on other areas that maybe have been neglected. So because people have the idea that dispensational is just about the rapture, just about the tribulation of the kingdom of God, because they're writing in other areas, they're not as well known. I didn't know that Timothy George was a dispensationalist because he just, you know, he's focused in other fields of Reformation theology, history, and that kind of thing. So the idea that it's there or it's disappearing is just not accurate. And by the way, uh, global politics 
you know, dispensationalists uh, not only have found a lot of educational institutions all over the globe um, and missions organizations, but a lot of people don't know that Harry Truman was a dispensationalist, the president who signed off on the recognition of Israel. He was a kid growing up and he wore glasses so he couldn't play sports. So what did he do? He'd go read the Bible and he came away with believing these promises to the Jewish people are intact. They're still in place. They can't be rescinded because God's promises on the line. And so when they brought him in the year that Israel was established, and the, the night that it happened, they walked into the White House and said, this, these Hebrews, these Jewish people revolted and they established themselves as a country. What are we going to do? He took a pencil and wrote in and recognized them as the first country to recognize them as the nation of Israel. And they asked him, why did you do that? And he said, well, because God's promises is for them to have that land at some point. So I'm just going to call them what they are. That's the nation of Israel. And uh, so dispensationalists have even affected global politics worldwide um, just by that simple understanding of the Bible of the Old Testament. Well, all right. I think uh, we'll end on that one. Where can people find more about you, your books, everything else? Where, where can people, if they want to uh, follow up and follow your ministry? Uh, I know you're, you're finishing up a second PhD because you're a glutton for torture, I guess. Uh, you're out at Northwest, right? Um, yes, Northwest University out of South Africa. Northwest University of Greenwich School of Theology. They're out of England and South Africa. Okay, and so... Uh, this will be your, your second PhD. And uh, so where can people find more of your work and want to, if they want to follow you, do you have a. Yeah, they can uh, on Facebook. If you type in the word Krista community, the word Christ and the letter I and the word community, you'll find my ministry there. I found the Krista community as a uh, educational ministry there, evangelism, educational and encouragement ministry. So you can type in on the internet anything to do with Krista Community. It's actually a federally trademarked name. So uh, if it's out there, it's associated with us because no one else has it. And uh, so you type in Facebook Krista Community and you can find us all over the internet and all over the, the global world. All right. Well, thank you for being here. I appreciate you taking the time to explain this. And I hope that you come back because I do want to uh, talk to you some more about ethical issues, uh, the issues of life and and capital punishment. I know that these are uh, hot button issues. So I, I do hope that you will come back and promote your book uh, on that and, and lay out some of that. Are you willing to come back? Absolutely. And appreciate the work you're doing up there at Trinity and the, the education you're giving to the students up there. Very thankful for the school and what you're doing there. All right. Well, I appreciate that, bud. And I appreciate everyone we're watching. Thank you.